Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. Uh, So we're going to turn to some more local headlines uh, here now as we talk about things going on in the culture and bringing the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. Um, I certainly am not turning our attention from Afghanistan or Haiti um, or the Uyghur people um, or those who are newly arrested by the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong today. Uh, the the challenges around the globe are many, and they are great. The challenges right here at home are many, and they are great as well. And uh, they're they're different. They I recognize that. Like I recognize that the challenges that we face here at home are often very different um, than the challenges faced around the world. And why is that? Well, in no small part because we actually do have a very stable government, even though we may disagree with one another vociferously from time to time on many things, we do have a a fairly stable system of government. And so we're going to we're going to talk about what it is like as Christians to inhabit an unraveling culture. But even as we have that conversation, we're going to do so recognizing that we do count on um, the systems continuing to operate for the most part as they're supposed to. Which takes me uh, here just briefly this morning to a headline out of Minnesota. Minnesota principals sign decentering whiteness pledge, and they make the suggestion to unions and the PTA um, to help bring an end to quote white supremacy. So this is a, an organization or a group of of principals and assistant principals called the Good Trouble. Oh well, that's actually the principals they're signing. The Good Trouble principals. Um, Oh, no, that's who they call themselves. Sorry, I'm, re- I'm rereading it now. The Good Trouble Principles say they are standing up for students of color. So the Good Trouble Principles is the name of the organ. That's how they describe themselves. Uh, not really an organization per se. They describe themselves as a loose collection of local principles bound together by a commitment to changing our nation's future by engaging in better, more equitable education practices. So these are 162 principals and assistant principals in the state of Minnesota serving in public schools who have um, pushed for, who are pushing for the goal of, quote, decentering whiteness in education. So their letter states that these principals intend to uh, decenter whiteness and dismantle the practice. This is I'm reading quotes here. Dismantle the practices that reinforce white academic superiority which allegedly includes standardized testing and an Americanized version of a caste system in our schools. Now, when you start using terms like caste system, you are pointing to India. You are pointing to Hinduism. There are worldview conversations that have to be had. Um, And the conversation about standardized testing that is happening in uh, apparently amongst this group of good trouble principles in Minnesota is similar to the conversation happening 
in Oregon where they have actually um, decided that there aren't going to be graduation requirements. Really, you don't um, you're going to get a a degree in the state of Oregon. You're going to get a high school degree, even if you don't complete the required course credits in subjects, including English, math, science and social studies. So um, while what does that look like? Um, to say that you have a diploma um, from a school system that no longer requires basic proficiency in um, the language of the land, English, or math. So um, one of the folks involved in, in this conversation about education and the way education is going to happen in America, um, which I'm just highlighting the story out of Minnesota because it happens to be uh, – a headline today, but we could pick another state on another day and we could have a very deep and broad ranging conversation about education. What is education? Who is educating whom? How is that education being delivered? By whom? Toward what end? And so some of the conversations I think we need to have um, as Christians and as Christians in an unraveling culture are big conversations, big conversations about immigration reform, about criminal justice reform, about educational reform. Um, Anything that's broken, like, is not going to get fixed apart from Christians who know what redeemed things look like. We have to be engaged and we have to participate and we have to come with better ideas and we have to be the people who say, you know what, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but that's okay because Jesus came and he took all that was broken and he broke himself in order that all that was broken could be made whole again. Like it's a gospel opportunity at every turn. So we're going to talk with Pastor Jonathan Dodson from City Life Church in Austin about what it looks like to inhabit an unraveling culture. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Jonathan Dodson joins me now. Uh, he is a pastor and um, and I would just say a person who is seeking to engage the wider conversation in the culture at the intersection of faith and life. He's the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas. He is a founder of Gospel-Centered Discipleship, author of several books, um, and joins us today really to to key in on a conversation about how we as Christians inhabit an unraveling culture. Jonathan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you lead off uh, this piece, and I'm reading um, again from the gospelcoalition.org. Um, you, you lead off with this, this data that 62% of Americans feel more anxious than they did a year ago. Um, talk with us about you know, sort of your sense of the times in which we live, and then, you know, share with us this this vision of what it looks like for a Christian to inhabit an unraveling culture. Yeah, we're, we are facing uh, a considerable amount of polarizing influences in our country uh, that 
are generating a lot of anxiety. The statistic comes from the American Psychological Association. And they point to some of the kind of, you know, typical things, COVID-19, suicide, politics, that are generating double-figure anxiety in the nation over the last three years. We all feel that. You know, that's a statistic that we all feel when we see a headline, uh, when we get into a spat with some online about masks. You know, there's, a, there's an increasing anxiety that's attaching to all of the controversial issues. And as a result, uh, our, our nation, uh, our churches, our friendships are being fractured, uh, polarized, and uh, there's just profound division. Uh, so I, I'm well aware of that as a pastor, uh, as a human being, experiencing that in my own friendships, in my own church, and in my own city. And so I wanted to, to kind of help us think through how do you, how do you inhabit uh, really a culture of division, a culture of polarization um, <clears throat> in a way that's redemptive. It, the temptation is to do one of two things. It's, it's to kind of side on, find one side you like and demonize the other side or to run away from it altogether and ignore it. And neither side promote the vision of Jesus Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Drawing on that very robust vision of the Old Testament of Shalom. Uh, Shalom, Cornelius Plantiga, the theologian, talks about Shalom as the wedding of all things together. Creation, God, society, in his peace, in his justice, in his joy. So people, sons, daughters of God, who follow Christ should be people who are articulating embodying the shalom. Unfortunately, what's happening is we're actually contributing to the unraveling of shalom. Uh, mm. we, we are choosing issues and, and, and standing on issues other than Christ or more, uh, we're giving more weight to other issues and therefore uh, attaching our significance to those and contributing to, to the division in relationships in our churches and in the society at large. So uh, what what we've got to do is recover a more biblical vision of our role as citizens, our role as disciples, our role uh, as as Christians. What does it look like to be someone who seeks to promote this robust vision of justice, joy, uh, reconciliation, the webbing of all things together in the God who creates and redeems all things? So Jonathan and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. And one of the things that um, I'm going to ask ask you, Jonathan, to talk a little bit more about is this making war to find peace part of the conversation. Um, Because I do think that it is, um, we are the people who know that there is, there is a dark storyline, but there is also a very bright storyline and that the conflict is real between the two. So I'd love for you to um, to help people um, see that and understand how to move forward positively in the midst of it. I am talking with Pastor Jonathan Dodson. Uh, his church is the City Life Church in Austin, Texas. We're talking about a piece he has posted at the Gospel Coalition, Inhabiting an Unraveling Culture. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with pastor and author Jonathan Dodson. Um, I'd love to spend some time, Jonathan, talking about um, your book, 
our good crisis, overcoming moral chaos with the Beatitudes. And I suspect that's part of what's going on here um, in this piece about how to inhabit an unraveling culture. Yeah, there definitely are uh, common themes, not all the material in the articles in the book, but there's certainly uh, uh, certainly addressing some of these common issues as we find ourselves in a constant state of crisis. How do we be people of virtue? That's the, that's one of the presenting challenges of our cultural moment. No question about it. So how do we be people of virtue? That's an excellent question. How do we make war to find peace? <laughs> well, we talked about earlier this uh, this division, the, the tendency to, tent, to, to, to demonize, to tribalize, and in fact to be uh, to be warriors, and uh, the the problem is that we're fighting the wrong war. It's as, as peacemakers. It's not that you put your head down and only do evangelism and ignore justice and culture making and those kinds of things. That's what I'm talking about. Because remember, the the peace that we talked about is robust. It's shalom. It touches all of creation. But there's a sense in which we've we've put the the cope, the, the creation mending agenda ahead of the deeper spiritual agenda. And the creation mending agenda is spiritual. So maybe just to take from John's apocalypse in, in Revelation, we're given this vision of a red rider who is, quote, permitted to take peace from the earth, who is who is permitted to take peace, shalom, from the earth. And uh, then he's, he's given to slay, to, to turn the world into kind of a, a, a one another slaying kind of context. So when we demonize, when we don't give people the best proper representation of their view, when we uh, get on our moral high, high horse and shout down people online instead of listening and uh, trying to make peace, we are actually contributing to what Satan himself is, is doing in trying to create war and damage and hate against one another. There's actually a deeper spiritual war that's going on, and we play into Satan's tactics, uh, we play into the powers of darkness instead of being communities of light, communities of shalom, communities that, that are driven by uh, rather the white horse that Christ rides, that brings uh, justice, that brings hope, uh, that brings redemption. So that, that's kind of the context here when we think about making war and making peace. We're actually fighting the wrong war instead of pursuing the robust shalom that everybody, all of creation, our enemies and our friends truly deeply need. Mm, I so appreciate, I so appreciate that perspective. Um, You have another related piece, and that is pastoral apologetics for a new era. Talk with us about uh, what you are seeing and experiencing as a pastor in an unraveling culture, and maybe, you know, give, give us a window into the reality of the pastoral life right now and what 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 you mean when you say pastoral apologetics, um, you know, are necessary in the days in which we now live? Oh, man, there's so much there. Um, perhaps two thoughts. <clears throat> pastoral apologetics, I'm basically saying probably the three hottest issues are race, sex, and gender. And if we respond like, a, like our, our society will, <clears throat> again, demonize or run away. But the role of the pastor is is to listen to people with concerns around these three issues and to empathize and to understand where they're coming from in order to shepherd them towards the truth, not to take a political position and judge people or to put people in categories. 
And, and a lot of what people are asking today is not, is Christianity true, but is it good? And in order for them to know that it's good, Christians influenced by secularism or secularist people themselves, they need to see a pastor, and by that, by extension, all Christians, who embody the good. So there's a sense in which the way that we respond to hot-button issues embodies and answers the deeper question that our society is asking. They don't really care if Christianity is true or not anymore. They want to know if it's good because it's failed in this area, that area, and that area. Mm. What would it look like for a Christian to embody the very goodness that we think Christianity is? Christ himself, how great is your goodness? Uh, Zechariah says, how great is your beauty? What does it look like to be a Christian who embodies the greatness and beauty of Christ? Well, then you begin to answer the question that's deeper underneath the objections around race, sex, and gender. And that is a disarming, um, that is a Christ-like thing to do. And then we get into the issues with a different tenor, with a different tone. Um, And, uh, you know, we we trust that what will happen, the results to God. So that's the kind of pastoral apologetics, uh, you know, answer to your question. What it's like to be a pastor? (laughs) It's crazy right now. Um, so you have people on the right, people on the left, you know, Jesus talks about taking out the log in your eye before you take the speck in others. And we're doing a lot of specks and not looking to the logs. And so all Christian leaders, there are logs on the right and logs on the left colliding on them because people are not doing the deeper work in their own heart of speck removal and seeking Christ and more they're, they're seeking more agendas, self-righteousness in their positions and then leaders are caught in the crossfire in the colliding timbers of self-righteousness. So um, it's a challenging time for all of us. Okay, um, we have we just have a minute left, but I would love for you to tell us um, about because um, I'm looking at it now, and I'll just confess, you know, this is new to me. This um, this I mean, gospel-centered discipleship because this is a really wonderful and unique approach to the conversations we need to be having today in every congregation. Yeah, so so that's a resource ministry that publishes three long-form articles a week and then also publishes books. Um, We've got a great team of editors, and the goal is really to to take uh, everyday issues and to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the issues, Um, whether it's parenting or whether it's media, uh, whether it's, you know, particular sins that we struggle with. So that's a resource ministry that's meant to help people and to really get the gospel grace down into the nooks and crannies of everyday life in order to make and mature and multiply Christ-like disciples. It's just fantastic. I'm just, um, I'm excited to uh, to know about it. And I look forward to, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be the person that's reading everything on the site today. So just so you know, who's that person that <laughs> okay. keeps clicking? That's going to be me. Yeah. Hey, thank you. I feel like I've made like a real discovery. For those of you that want to check it out, gcdiscipleship.com, um, which, you know, you could think of as uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, what is the G and the C? What do they stand for? Gospel-centered. Because it could be like Great Commission. And so then I was like, I don't want to yeah. say the yeah. wrong thing. Gospel-Centered Discipleship, gcdiscipleship.com. Jonathan, what a delight to to have you join us today. Blessings on you um, as you do the work of a pastor today, uh, making the good visible. Like, I just think that is such a helpful uh, way to think about apologetics today. 
Um, we yeah. we got to take a very brief break for Breakpoint, but then we'll be right back. Anxiety um, is real. Lots of people are dealing with it today. Our kids are anxious. We want to call them to be brave, but they need guidance and guides in order to do that. Sissy Goff is one of those guides, and she is offering guidance. The latest of Sissy's books is Brave, a teen girl's guide to beating worry and anxiety. Sissy joins us next. This is Max Lucado. The man near the pool of Bethesda did not use the word stuck, but he could have. For 38 years near the edge of a pool, it was just him, his mat, and his paralyzed body. They must have made a miserable sight. Crowds of people, blind, lame, despondent, dejected, one after the other, awaiting their chance to be placed in the pool where healing waters bubbled up. All the Gospels' stories of help and healing invite us to embrace this wonderful promise. Wherever Jesus went, he healed people of every sort of illness. And what pity he felt for the crowds that came, because their problems were so great, they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. Jesus had a heart for the hurting in his day. He still does today. This is Max Locato. Sissy Golf has been um, at this a while. Um, she is the director of child and adolescent counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee. She's been talking with girls since 1993, and she's been helping them and their parents find confidence, not only in who they are, but hope in who God is making them to be. Um, there is there is not anybody uh, out there in the culture whose voice I would want to elevate um, any more than I want to elevate uh, the voice of Sissy Goff. Uh, the book we're going to talk about today is Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety. But the precursors are rock solid, and I don't want you to miss them either. Are My Kids on Track? The 12 Emotional, Social, and Spiritual Milestones Your Child Needs to Reach. And then Raising Worry-Free Girls, Helping Your Daughter Feel Braver, Stronger, and Smarter in an Anxious World. You can find it all, and you can find Susie at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. Susie Goff, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. I'm so excited to talk with you. I know. I'm excited to talk with you as well. Um, So talk about, you know, there's a little bit of a trilogy going on here. So kind of just lay out for folks, (laughs) because one book might be more where they are than another book, and I kind of want folks to know that. Yes. So I wrote Are My Kids on Track with my two dear friends and co-workers, David Thomas and Melissa Trevathan. And we really were talking about back then, which now we're looking at about six years ago, the changes we were seeing counseling kids and families. And and we really outlined the four emotional, the four social and the four spiritual milestones we felt like every child needed to reach at some point along the way 
and that we were seeing kids reach to a lesser degree than ever before in all of our years of counseling. And so that book came first, and that feels pretty foundational to every child in any situation, every family. And out of that book, our editor came to me and said, Sissy, there's this little section you wrote about girls and anxiety, and you talked about the average age of onset was eight and how you were seeing it happen so much more than ever before. And in fact, I talked about one in eight kids were dealing with anxiety when I wrote that. And then so he asked me to write this book for elementary age girls and being a therapist, my response was not unless I can write one for parents, too. So that's what I did. And so I wrote Raising Worry-Free Girls for the Parent and Braver, Stronger, Smarter for Elementary-Age Girls, who at that point we shifted from one in eight kids to one in four girls were, or one in four kids were dealing with anxiety and girls were twice as likely. Then fast forward, I think probably three months later, the pandemic hit and I moved from counseling in person to counseling via Zoom and the population I was most worried about then were the adolescents. So I cranked out, I think in about six weeks, I wrote Brave for Teenage Girls. So yes, I'm trying to hit it at all ages and kind of across the spectrum of how we can help kids and families in this day and time. That's so tricky. All right. So now that you guys have heard um, about the range of things that are available here, now let me tell you the website again, raisingboysandgirls.com. I do have copies of the latest book, Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety to Give Away Today. Um, But if you're looking for the other books, please just go to RaisingBoysAndGirls.com so that you can get that information as well. You know the drill. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. All right. Specifically, the book Brave. Um, Why do we need this book right now? Hmm. Because girls are anxious. And I, you know, I counsel kids during the year. And then during the summer, we have this little version of a summer retreat program. So I spent about seven weeks with kids living with them this summer. And to watch the adolescents, Carmen, I have, I mean, in almost 30 years of counseling kids, I've never seen anything like it. The anxiety that was so prevalent with them, the the anxiety I believe is now really rippling over into depression for these kids. And just the blankness. It felt like they were withdrawn and kind of hidden inside of themselves in a way I've never seen. And so I feel like we're at really a crossroads of needing to help these kids. And so it was fun for me to write Brave because the purpose really in all of these books was, I kind of jokingly said it was to work people like me out of a job, but but each book is kind of here are the first few months of counseling of what I would be doing without you ever having to come see me. And so kind of a first line of defense was my hope. And so, I, you know, to put that book in any adolescent girl's hands I can would be my biggest goal right now when it's just so hard. All right. So let me um, repeat that in case you missed it. All of Sissy's tools that she uses in the first month of, month of counseling are actually included in this book. The book is Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety. Um, It's got the feelings chart. It's got uh, the worry temperature. It's got um, it's got stuff that, uh, yeah, you you, we can't all sit with Sissy in her office, but we can all sit with Sissy because she has put her office and her counsel in our hands. I, I can't even describe to you what a gift that is. If you know a teen girl who is anxious, 
And so if you know a teen girl, I could have just said, um, because they're all anxious right now, um, this is a book they need. This is actually for them. And yeah, it's for parents of them, but it's really for them. Um, And so that's why, you know, it's 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 year olds who um, uh, who are the ones who wrote the endorsements in the front of the book. If you want a copy, enter the drawing by texting the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Sissy, you know, I I said every, you know, if you know a teen girl, they're all anxious. What are the symptoms that parents should be looking for? Well, it's so tough with teen girls because they, you know, they're in their room so much more. They're a little sullen. They're a little irritable just by nature of development and where they are. But I think right now the things we want to be watching for are the sense of withdrawn and just when you look at them, if they feel less engaged and not only at home, because that's often going to happen with adolescents is they're going to pull back at home and you're going to kind of get the worst versions of themselves, which is honestly, it's a compliment. It doesn't feel like a compliment at all, but it is. It means they feel safe with you. But it's, I would say with teenagers, particularly when it feels like they're withdrawing from friends, when they're isolating from the things that they used to love, when they're not wanting to be involved in different activities, when you don't see their spirits lift when they're with their own community that they feel passionate about. That's when I think we want to be worried about adolescents. And so that's one of the primary ways. I think otherwise, if you hear, I mean, it can also look like anger with any age of child. Anxiety can kind of morph into anger. So that a lot of somatic issues. So if they're having a lot of physical complaints and the doctor has said there's really nothing going on, that's mm-hmm. something to watch for. And just a critical, if they're critical of themselves, angry at themselves a lot, a lot of perfectionists deal with anxiety too. I mean, I would say any of those things. Mm, that's so helpful. Um, we're going to uh, come back from a very brief break and have Susie ans- or Sissy answer the question, what is a teen's worry temperature and how do we take it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking with a Sissy Goff. You can find her and lots of resources at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. We're talking specifically today about her newest book, Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety. It is a great resource actually for teenage girls. Um, and yes, their parents and others who care about them, but really for teenage girls. So if you need a copy, go ahead and text the word book to 877 We've got a drawing for the handful of copies that we have from our friends over at Baker today. Um, All right, Sissy, what is uh, a teen's worry temperature and how do we take it? (laughs) Well, you know, it's a little easier with the little ones because they're going to be pretty direct with you. But I think with teenagers, we just want to get a sense of because everything can feel exaggerated for them. You know, how significant is what they're worried about? And I talk in the book about kind of this continuum from fear to worry to anxiety. And so to have an understanding of how significant is this for you, one of the first things I'll do is in counseling in my office is have kids write about the different things they're worried about when they're not with me in a journal and then have them literally put a number between one and 10 with it, because I want to understand what are the more significant things that are triggering for them, because then we want to help them come down from that 10. And to know that even in the midst of worry, because we all know that we have worry, it's part of what keeps us functioning in our daily life. 
you know, how can you keep moving forward with this sense of anxiety? Or if it's at 10 all the time, then we do want to talk about maybe getting them into therapy and getting them to see somebody. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about um, the role of a dad. What's the role of a dad in the life of a teenage girl? So important. I think men have an ability. I think we women, Carmen, I don't know if you would say this is true about yourself, but I think I sure would about myself. We just live with an intensity sometimes that I think can escalate a child's anxiety without intending to. And as a parent, if you have anxiety yourself, your kids are seven times more likely to. So mm. I did all this research and preparing for these books. There was, that was something I read. Another thing that I thought was fascinating were in a two was in a, in a two parent household. One parent typically has anxiety and the other doesn't, and the non anxious parent is often dismissed. And typically, what I see in my office is the non anxious parent is a dad. And I think as women, we just, again, live with that intensity. A lot of us have anxiety. Some of us aren't even aware with aware of it anymore. I, I mean, I will say to parents, if you're type A, I think bottom line is you have some anxiety. We just weren't necessarily talking about it when we were growing up. We weren't in counseling, and so we didn't know. And so for dads, that ability to help kids work through whatever they're afraid of in a playful way, in an adventurous way, I think can be a huge catapult to them to work them through it. Because for any of us, if we're anxious, I mean, every person who deals with anxiety, every therapist would say, you have to work through the scary thing or we're never going to get through it. And so I think dads have a unique ability to help kids move through that. So I like the section where you talk about worry words and then, yeah, you also talk about this continuum um, maybe unpack that a little bit, because my guess is there are people listening who are like, oh, fear, worry, and anxiety. I figured those are kind of all the same thing. Right. Yes. And we use those words interchangeably, all of us. So fear really is about something specific. You know, I'm afraid of jellyfish. I just went to the ocean recently. You know, there are specific things that my fears are anchored to. Worry is a little more pervasive and we are worrying often anticipatorily about something like it hasn't even happened yet and we can't stop thinking about it or, you know, we're we're worrying about something that did happen. Anxiety, however, I say to kids in my office, it's like the one loop roller coaster at the fair. And so mm -hmm. That's not even just kids. That's us as grownups, too. But something pops into our minds. You know, we all have thousands of what are called intrusive thoughts a day. So I hope I don't sound crazy saying this, but, you know, I'm driving across a bridge and I think, oh, I could go off the bridge. That doesn't mean I want to drive my car off the bridge. That just means that popped into my head as an intrusive thought. And so for for any of us who have anxiety, that intrusive thought gets stuck and it goes over and over and over. And so kids, especially young kids who are saying the things more verbally, will have repetitive questions in that time. You know, even going to bed, tell me, I remember a parent saying to me, their child every night before bed said, how do I get, how am I going to get to school in the morning? What happens in the morning? And the parent was like, we're 185 days into the school year. Like they've gone to school the same way every single day. But that kind of questioning, what's our plan tomorrow? What are we doing? Tell me the schedule again. How am I going to do this? You know, those repetitive questions are really indicative of that loop that's going on in their brain over and over and over and over. Mm. Um, all right. I feel slightly less crazy now because you confessed that <laughs> The intrusive thoughts are sometimes like really bizarre and you're like, why am I having that crazy intrusive yes. thought? And now yes. I know, you know, now I can just say to it, hey, I recognize you. You're an intrusive thought. Go away. 
Exactly. You're not like you're not like evidence that I'm um gonna drive off the bridge. You are evidence right. that thoughts intrude and because I'm a disciple, I know that what I'm gonna do is invite Christ to take that thought captive. Mm-hmm. Not every young person is equipped in that way. Um, and I might hope that they would be over time, but there's a discipleship component to this that I think does come with maturity. And so I can't expect a younger person to be where I am um, on, you know, on that path either. There's a there's a withing that takes place, uh, you know, in the in the parent child relationship. And, you know, and so as a disciple, I got to be constantly pursuing Christ and drawing closer and making progress so that I can continue to be the curriculum that another person would even be interested in looking at to follow. Mm, yes, absolutely. I mean, they especially, if we think we're crazy with those intrusive thoughts, they do. And until they can speak them out loud and mm-hmm. we can say those aren't truth, that's not what God wants for you. That's not who you are in Christ. You know, they don't have any way to break out of that. Mm. That is so helpful. I'm taking notes. All right, um, which I know I have the book and everybody else should as well. The book is Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety. Sissy Goff is the author. You can find it at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com as well as tons of other great resources. But we're also giving away copies today. So if you'd like to enter the drawing for those, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. we probably have time for like, you know, a, a robust answer to one more question. And so I'm, of course, always, I always have six or seven left that I'd like to ask. But maybe let's do this. Um, for for parents or grandparents of teens listening right now, how do we help our teen girls move toward independence? Mm. You know, my magic formula with teenagers that I love is empathy and questions. That those two things that we go back to over and over, because we talk about in the Are My Kids on Track book that kids aren't developing resourcefulness today because we're so busy being their resources. And that's true at every age. And I think especially with adolescents, we don't feel connected to them. And so we think connecting can be fixing it for them. And I came up with this definition of anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. And so when we step in and fix something, we're saying, yep, you can't do it. You need me. And what they need to be developing is exactly what you said, independence. So that sounds really hard. What do you think would help? I hate that you're in the middle of that. What do you think God would want you to do in this? Who do you think God wants you to be? That we're compassionate and we're asking questions because questions imply capability. I believe you're capable just by asking a question. Mm. I I think that getting to the place where um, I don't, so I'll just tell you what, this is an experience in my own household. She's almost 18. Mm. She doesn't, and I, and so, you know, when she tells me that there's two light bulbs burnt out in her bathroom, I just looked at her and I'm like, so I am really confident that is a problem you can solve for yourself. I I have like, (laughs) I have absolutely every confidence that's a problem you can solve for yourself. And for a moment, she just stood there and looked at me. And that was such evidence, Sissy, that, you know, it's not it's not even just that I have in the past changed the light bulbs. I've changed them proactively. Like I've I have proactively solved the problem. I haven't even let them get to the place where they saw the problem and articulated the problem and then learned how to be resourceful enough to. To, so I am, I am in need of the counsel that you are offering, not just to the teen girls, but to 
the people with whom the teen girls live. And so well, and I want to say that thank you. You're a great parent. That's what you're doing. You don't want your kids to feel discomfort. And that's why we step in. But they've got to learn to live with discomfort. So way yeah. to go on putting it back on her. She can change the light bulbs. She can totally change. And if she has to go buy a light bulb, she can do that, too. So there you go. Yes. yes. On and on and on. Oh, I just I love you. I love what you're doing. I love, I love how you're doing it. I love the testimonies of all the girls in the front of the book. Um, I just that was, you know, if my favorite part of the book could be that, you know, 13 year olds are saying this blesses me. I felt like I was sitting there with Sissy or Sissy sitting there with me. Um, it was just so great. So thank you. The book is Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety. Find Sissy at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. All right, um, uh, Paul, I'm going to run over my last break, and I'm going to take the last minute that we have here together to call us again to be a people of prayer today for all of those who are hurting in the context of our own homes, in our own communities, in our churches, in our nation, and around the world. Let's be a people of prayer today. Let's lift up one another. Um, I will be um, I will be obedient to lift you up in prayer, and I will be confident of your prayers today as well. Um, let us be a people of prayer, not a people who are anxious, but who take those things that make us anxious and present them to the Lord. Let's lift them up with the confidence that God is available and ready and faithful to answer, that God is good and gracious and merciful. That his mercies are new every morning and his grace is all sufficient. His grace is sufficient for whatever you are facing today and whatever today brings and whatever ways the world might press in upon us. So let's be praying today for the people of Afghanistan, for the people of Haiti, for the men and women of the U.S. military who are making emergency flights in and out of both of those countries today. Let us be uh, praying for people in places and spaces we will never visit and will never have heard of, but God knows and God is present. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.